Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 364, The God Who Suffers, a response to the Reluctant Theologian Podcast, Episode 118, Why Did God Become Incarnate? Dr. R.T. Mullins is a standout analytic theologian and is the host of the overall best analytic theology podcast called The Reluctant Theologian Podcast. He currently teaches for the University of Lucerne in Switzerland and for Palm Beach Atlantic University in Florida. I'm not exaggerating when I say that I consider him to be an important reformer. Specifically, he has been taking out the garbage as concerns traditional speculations about divine attributes. When those traditional and in certain circles prestigious claims about divine simplicity, immutability, timelessness, and impassibility clash with clear biblical teachings and or reason, they should be rejected. And positively, we must work out what a perfect being must be like in a way that fits hand-in-glove with the divinely revealed portrayals of God in Scripture. If you're a Southern Baptist and you hang out with educated Baptists who idolize the 13th century Roman Catholic philosopher St. Thomas Aquinas, you need to read Dr. Mullins' work ASAP and bring yourself out of the darkness and into the light. In general, if your mind is captive to so-called classical theism, then his work is something you need to learn from. And a word of warning. Don't form your judgment of Dr. Mullen's abilities or the value of his overall work by what he says on today's topic. I'm not ashamed to say that Dr. Mullen's is clearly better at analytic theology than I am. Just have a look at his record of publications and compare it to mine. It's just that even the best of us can venture down a speculative dead end. Now, he knows that he's speculating, and there's nothing wrong with that, so long as one is open to critical feedback, and Dr. Mullins is. Speculating and then backtracking is an important way that we theorizers learn. Myself, I've done this many times. One last caveat, and this is true of just about everything that Dr. Mullins does, The episode that I'm going to critique just a part of is packed with insights. I'm going to pass by most of them so that I can focus on an area of disagreement here that I think is important. So definitely listen to his whole episode. I'll put a link to that on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org, as I will to the other podcast episodes and verses that I mentioned in today's episode. So let's get started with my response to the Reluctant Theologian Podcast, Episode 118, Why Did God Become Incarnate? First, I need to fuss about words for a minute. If you've listened to this podcast for a long time, you've heard from and about Professor Richard Swinburne, who is on all accounts one of the greatest living Christian philosophers and analytic theologians. I've often wondered about how Swinburne uses the word God. The word God in our language is almost like a proper name for the only God, that is, the necessarily unique deity who is the ultimate reality and the ultimate source of all else. A Trinitarian theologian thinks that this deity is tripersonal. 
So for her, a main use of the word God should be for the Trinity. Even though this runs counter to biblical usage of the words we translate as God. Anyway, in his clearer moments, Swinburne will write about the incarnation involving the second person of the Trinity. But then he will write at great lengths about, quote, God becoming incarnate. Even though on his view, the unique God is the Trinity, and the Trinity did not become incarnate. In fact, Swinburne's Trinity in principle could not become incarnate, as it is not a self, as he makes clear. But what one famous Trinitarian thinks is not necessarily what other Trinitarians think. Some other famous recent Trinitarian theologians are what I call oneself Trinitarians. For them, in contrast to Swinburne, the persons of the Trinity are not persons or selves, but rather the Trinity himself is a self. So when they talk about the one God himself, that actually makes sense. The persons, for them, are basically God's personalities or ways he eternally lives. For such a theologian, it does make sense to talk about God becoming incarnate, presumably by way of his son personality, or some would say his son mode of being. Now, in this thought-provoking episode of the Reluctant Theologian podcast, Dr. Mullins considers at length the motivations God would have to become incarnate. And as he presents these, it seems he is not imagining some ancient group discussion between three parties. You know, hey guys, what should we do? Let's decide what to do here. Okay, these seem like some good reasons why one of us should become incarnate. Okay, so we all agree you should become incarnate. Okay, so we're unanimous about this. Meeting adjourned. No, that's not the idea. What he envisions is, hmm, why should I become incarnate? He argues that there are good reasons for God to become incarnate. Is Dr. Mullins a one-self Trinitarian, like the famous 20th century theologians Bart and Rahner? Or is he really a three-self or a social Trinitarian, as he's publicly said, following Swinburne and others, in misleadingly saying that, in his view, God becomes incarnate, when in fact that did not and could not happen, but instead, one person who is a member of the Trinity, or one person within God, became incarnate. Or, are we supposed to think that the whole Trinity literally becomes incarnate via one part of it becoming incarnate? I don't know, but I think it's weird for a three-self Trinitarian, if Dr. Mullins is that, to talk without clarification of God becoming incarnate, when on their view, the Trinity, which is supposed to be the unique God, isn't a self, and so isn't the sort of thing which might become incarnate. Okay, that's the end of my fussing about words in this episode. One more preliminary point. The presupposition of all this whole realm of speculation is that it's metaphysically possible for God to become incarnate. I object that it's not metaphysically possible, and that we can know that this is so, because the idea of a fully divine someone also being fully and truly human entails at least 11 contradictions. I don't think that a theologian, and particularly a reluctant one, should just assume that someone can be both divine and human. A more reasonable approach is to start off like Dr. William Lane Craig does. First, 
you rattle off the apparent incompatibilities between divinity and humanity like this. How can Jesus be both God and man? As Christians believe, if anything appears to be a contradiction, surely this is it. For the properties of being divine and being human seem to be mutually exclusive to shut each other out. God is self-existent, necessary, eternal, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, and so on. But human beings are created, dependent, time-bound, and limited in power, knowledge, and space. So how can one person be both human and divine? And then you show why those apparent contradictions are only apparent. That is, you present your own version of two natures Christology, your own incarnation theory, and show how this is contradiction-free. Dr. Craig thinks that can be done. I don't think that it can be done. I don't know what Christology Dr. Mullins may be thinking is going to remove all of these contradictions, but there is a bill that needs to be paid here. In my forthcoming paper in the journal Theologica about Dr. William Lane Craig's Christology, I highlight 11 contradictions implied by claiming someone is both human and divine. I'm not going to give the whole list here, but for starters, any human should be in principle capable of limited knowledge, to put it mildly. But God is essentially omniscient. He's not capable of having limited knowledge. Any human, if they're put in the right circumstances, will be temptable. That is, such that they can be given a motive to do wrong. But God is not, in principle, temptable to do wrong. He does not have that vulnerability. To put it in analytic philosopher talk, there is no possible world in which a fully divine being is actually tempted to do wrong, since such a one can't have a motive to do wrong. Why? Well, see podcast 277, Was Christ Tempted in Every Way, for more on that. Anyway, for the full list of apparent God-man contradictions, you can see my forthcoming paper in Theologica, which should be available shortly, I presume before the summer of 2023. In that paper, I'm evaluating Craig's unique incarnation theory, but there's a lot in that paper that's applicable beyond Craig's theory. If Dr. Mullins has a successful two-natures theory about Jesus, then part of what would make it successful is that it would get rid of all 11 of those apparent contradictions. So I think we're owed that. But having said that, when you're philosophizing, you can't address everything, and you have to start somewhere. Now that we've noted that he's starting with the assumption that there can be, in fact has been, a God-man, let's see how the argument goes, and let's see if on that assumption it's a convincing argument. So from here on out, for the most part, I'll grant for the sake of argument that someone can be both human and divine, because I think we can learn some interesting things from Dr. Mullins' discussion, even without fighting that battle. The title of his podcast is, Why Did God Become Incarnate? Of course, the reason we have to speculate about this is because the Bible doesn't answer this question. But why is that? The reason the Bible doesn't answer this question is because the Bible doesn't ask or raise this question. The reason why the Bible doesn't ask or raise this question is because it doesn't teach that God himself became incarnate as the man Jesus. It says some similar things, but not that. 
In John 1, it teaches that God's eternal word or wisdom by which he made all things, so to speak, became flesh in the man Jesus. On that, see my online lecture, What John 1 Meant. Again, there's a link on the blog post. Again, the New Testament teaches that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. 2 Corinthians 5.19 Not that God was Christ, but rather that he was in Christ. That is to say, working through and with him, as is a clear teaching of the fourth gospel. Again, we read that in the man Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Colossians 2.9 But this very statement and the whole book distinguishes between Jesus and God. See chapter 1, where Jesus is God's Son and the unique image of God, through whom, Paul says, God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things. Even if you think incarnation is possible, the New Testament grounds for such a claim are surprisingly thin. When the Trinity's podcast returns, three reasons that Swinburne and Mullins offer why God would become incarnate. But let's move on to Swinburne's and Mullins's three reasons why God would become incarnate. First, they urge that God did this to provide atonement through the cross. But notice that what the New Testament actually says here is not that God himself died on the cross, something which would have caused great surprise and distress. See Trinity's podcast episodes 323, Did God Die on the Cross? and 333, The Arguments of God's Death. Rather, the teaching is that God sent someone else to die for us, namely, his human son. See, for example, Romans 5, where we read, Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand, and we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. And skipping a bit, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Indeed, rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person someone might actually dare to die. But God proves his love for us, in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Much more surely, therefore, since we have now been justified by his blood, we will be saved through him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more surely, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life. But more than that, we even boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death came through sin, and so death spread to all because all have sinned, For sin was indeed in the world before the law, but sin is not reckoned when there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who did not sin in the likeness of Adam, who was a pattern of the one who was to come. 
But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died through the one man's trespass, much more surely have the grace of God and the gift in the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for the many. And the gift is not like the effect of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the gift following many trespasses brings justification. If because of the one man's trespass, death reigned through that one, much more surely will those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, just as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all, so one man's act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all. For just as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so through the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Lest someone allege that sending someone else to die for us is cosmic child abuse, keep in mind that Jesus at this time was not a child, and that in Gethsemane he willingly, even though reluctantly, went along with the program. And so he was not in any way abused by God in this. In Hebrews 12, we read that Jesus, for the sake of the joy that was set before him, endured the cross disregarding its shame, and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. All of this was worth it to Jesus. He has no resentments as one abused. It was his great privilege to do what he did, and he was uniquely rewarded for it. See Revelation 5. He went through that terrible time, but he's been sitting pretty ever since. Further, Both the New Testament and perfect being theology teach that God is alive and can't possibly be dead, which is to say he is essentially immortal. By contrast, the man Jesus has now been raised to immortality, but is not essentially immortal, as shown by his having died. On this, see Trinity's podcast 145, Tis Mystery All, The Immortal Dies. If one wants to say that somehow incarnation implies that God himself actually can die, after all, well, this needs to be shown. In sum, if it were possible for God to be a mortal man, this would make sense as a reason for God himself to incarnate. But why think that is the only way to provide atonement? Or why think it is the best way? Why not send someone else to do it? as the New Testament straightforwardly teaches. It hasn't been shown that God himself being the victim would be better, even supposing that it's possible. A human atoner seems perfectly appropriate. Admittedly, there are traditional speculations about atonement which urge that the atoner must be fully divine. But for now, I'll just point out that the New Testament nowhere teaches that. When the Trendies podcast returns, Swinburne's and Mullen's second reason for God to become incarnate.
What is the second motivation Swinburne and Mullins suggest that will drive God to incarnate himself? This is what Dr. Mullins says. Through an incarnation, God can provide important information and encouragement to humanity related to morality and the good life. Humans, they need help understanding how to live a morally good life. Through intuition and through reason, we can often discern moral truths. We really can, but we need a great deal of help in embodying those moral truths in our daily lives. We also need encouragement to live the good life. We need to know that all of our struggles towards righteousness and justice, we need to know if that's going to be really worth it in the end. And Swinburne says that Christ's life, death, and resurrection does exactly that. The first thing to see about these worthy goals is that they clearly do not require becoming incarnate oneself because they might be accomplished also by sending human servants to instruct us and to model a life of faithful obedience for us. In fact, the New Testament presents the man Jesus as an ideal model of faith or trust in God. See Trinity's podcast 146, Jesus as an Exemplar of Faith in the New Testament, or my published paper with a similar title. A fully divine person, or God himself, who exists and flourishes apart from anything else, and is essentially omnipotent and omniscient, would have no need of faith or trust in God. But a human, vulnerable Savior, like the man Jesus of the New Testament, was able to do exactly that. Now perhaps they would say that the best way to transmit this information to us is for God to become incarnate himself. But why would that be better than someone who more fully shares our condition like the man Jesus? True, incarnation theorists, following the council at Chalcedon in the year 451, aim to present a Jesus who, as Hebrews 2.17 says, is like his brothers and sisters in every respect, except, of course, that he, unlike us, is not a sinner. But lofty aims don't accomplish the task. Typically, Orthodox Christologies present us with a God-man who is immune to temptation and who is all-knowing and all-powerful. Such a one, I suggest, is a less suitable model for us to imitate and will not be any better in informing us than a human Jesus. In John 3.34, the man Jesus tells us that he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. Words from God. Those will have the information we need, even when uttered by a human who is not also divine. Finally, what about encouragement? I agree that we need encouragement, as we're so fragile and subject to death. Who better than a mortal Savior who obeys God even through a terrible death and is awarded with resurrection to immortality? This is what is taught in Philippians 2 and in 1 Corinthians 15 and elsewhere. The man Jesus, we're told in Colossians 1.18 and in Revelation 1.5, is the firstborn from the dead. He's our forerunner. We, too, unless Jesus returns before we die, have to pass through a normal human death, assuming room temperature and all. But as Paul says, that corpse is just a seed being planted, and what will sprout up is an immortal body destined for everlasting life in God's kingdom. In sum, information, encouragement, and I would add an imitatable example a human messiah seems fully up to these tasks.
And I see no reason to suppose that God incarnate, ignoring all the problems and supposing this were possible, would be better. The information would be the same, but he'd be inferior as an imitatable example. And the encouragement provided by God going through something that resembles a human death is not as great as that provided by the example of a human servant of God being raised back to life by God and awarded for his obedience with, among other things, immortality. But I think the real interest of Swinburne's discussion for Dr. Mullins is his third and final reason, which Dr. Mullins explains like this. God would become incarnate in order to enter into solidarity with creatures. This is the reason I find most interesting, so that's going to be the main focus of this episode. I think that a major reason for God to become incarnate is to enter into solidarity and friendship with humanity. I'm going to say that God becomes incarnate because it is the best way for God to accomplish his goal of befriending humans. Also, I'm going to say that God becomes incarnate because that is the morally right thing to do if God is going to create a universe like this one. He notes that God's creating entails God's changing, something considered outrageous by the classical theism crowd, but I'm going to assume that most of my audience will say, well, of course. One of these changes has to do with something which Dr. Mullins has been doing important work on, God's emotions. If God freely decides to create a universe with morally weighty creatures, this has consequences for the kind of emotions God will have. God has decided to create a universe with human persons that, will, that he's going to love for all of eternity. And part of what it means for God to love humans is that God values their existence and flourishing. And God values having a union or friendship with humans. Valuing something or caring about something, that creates a disposition to have certain kinds of emotions towards that thing. Because if you care about something, you deem that thing to be worthy of your attention and worthy of you to act on behalf of. An emotion is a felt evaluation of some object or circumstance that is grounded in one's cares and concerns. If God creates a universe with things that are valuable, then God's going to acquire certain stable dispositions or sentiments towards those valuable things. This is because God deems these objects to be worthy of his attention and action. So this concern towards his creatures and his plans for those creatures, that grounds a range of possible emotions that God can have. I agree completely. Now, as I see it, a perfectly good God will be emotionally impacted by his creation. So Swinburne maintains that if, if God makes a universe in which creatures suffer, then his perfect goodness would lead him to share in our suffering. So as perfectly good, God will always perform the best possible action, if there is a best possible action, because there's not always a best one. If there is no best action, then God's going to perform just any action that advances his purposes. So in this case, Swinburne thinks that if there is a best action to perform, and he thinks there is one, actually, when it comes to creating this universe, he thinks there is a best action, and that action is for God to choose to suffer with his creatures. In fact, Swinburne thinks that God must become incarnate and share the suffering with his creatures. So a major consequence of God's decision to create a universe like the one we find ourselves in is that God must become incarnate in order to share in our suffering. Well, that's, that's a moral obligation that God takes on. Why should we think that God has a moral obligation towards his creatures like that? 
Well, Francis McConnell, he thinks that the consequences of a morally perfect God's creative act are very clear. So here's a quote from McConnell. This is what he says. God is under heavy moral obligations to come near his children in the very deepest sense possible. He has sent his creatures forth into a terribly painful world, and he must do all he can to render the pain tolerable. He has bestowed upon men the unsolicited boon of freedom, an awful gift, and he is thereby under moral necessity to go to extremes to relieve men from the evil which thus becomes almost inevitable. If God is a moral God, we have in the infinite intensity of his ethical life a mighty pressure which sends him towards the lots of his his children. We may speak of this as the center of power, as the conscience of God, to use a term which will suggest an unresting insistence. The father is under unescapable responsibility for the welfare of his children. So that's McConnell. So for McConnell, when when God decides to create a universe like the one we find ourselves in, God acquires a moral obligation towards his creation. When God decides to create, God takes on a duty of care and responsibility for this universe. And part of that duty of care is the responsibility to see this creative project through to completion. As McConnell sees things, the incarnation of God is the outcome of God trying to satisfy this obligation. So McConnell says that God is, quote, really anxious to show us that our shoulders are not weighted with any burden which he is not willing so far as possible to take upon himself. I mean, think about that for a minute. God's not willing to let us undergo any kind of burden that he himself would not undergo. That, that sounds like a God who cares. That sounds like a God who is willing to take responsibility for his creative actions. By becoming incarnate, God freely takes on the responsibility of his creative project. He demonstrates that he is willing to share in the situation that he has placed us in. By becoming incarnate, God comes to know the loneliness of physical helplessness and the pathway to death. For McConnell, he says, quote, The cross shows us a father under moral obligation to exert every moral influence for the moral salvation of his children. Yet, McConnell, he doesn't think that salvation of mankind, he doesn't think it's the primary function of the incarnation and Christ's death on a cross. So here's a longer quote from McConnell. This is what he says. He says, The cross is, first of all, God's supreme satisfaction of his own conscience, the preservation of his own self-respect. God has sent men forth into a terrible universe without consulting them, and has thrust into their hands an awful boon of freedom. He is thus under enormous moral obligation. He need not have created men, but having created them, he cannot discharge his moral bonds to them and to himself short of Calvary. There is no responsibility in the universe so heavy as that of creatorship. If the biblical teaching that the earthly pain of man is in part at least a consequence of the moral evil, as within it, if if that has within it a grain of truth, it is hard to see how a moral creator could have peace of conscience without sharing the pain made necessary by the moral imperfections flowing from an unsolicited gift of freedom. So that's the quote from McConnell. Personally, I find the suggestion quite plausible, and I find it very intriguing, too. Something is morally suspect about a God who creates a universe with a kind of suffering that he himself is unwilling to endure. As I understand things, every view of providence affirms that sin, evil, and suffering are inevitable in the kind of universe that God selects to create. 
If God creates a universe knowing that suffering is inevitable, and God is unwilling to suffer along with his creatures, then God seems to be asking something utterly outrageous of his creatures. God would be commanding us to participate in his creative project without putting any skin in the game. And that just seems wrong to me. It would suggest that the lives of his creatures have no personal impact on him. Instead, a morally good God will not ask his creatures to endure a kind of suffering that he himself is unwilling to endure. A morally good God will demonstrate to his creatures that his creative project is worth it by becoming incarnate and enduring the kinds of trials that he asks us to endure. As I see it, the incarnation is in part a demonstration that God is willing to put some skin in the game in order to see his creative project through to the end. When the Trinity's podcast returns, I'll reply at length to this third reason. Okay, that was a lot. Let's unpack it. Let's start with God's desire and aim to befriend humans. Clearly, becoming incarnate is not necessary to befriending humans. In Scripture, Abraham is explicitly a friend of God, Isaiah 41.8, and Moses is depicted this way too. And the divine revelation they brought enabled millions after them to find a peace with God through God's self-revelation. But perhaps Mullins and Swinburne might urge that self-incarnating is the best way to befriend humans. I would point out in reply that this is not obviously true, and also that it is not taught anywhere in Scripture. In Scripture, even now, after the much greater revelation through Jesus, see John 1 and Hebrews 1, still we need a mediator. And that is who Jesus is, according to the New Testament, the unique mediator between God and humankind, 1 Timothy 2.5. A mediator is by definition a third party and not one of the two parties he is mediating. And so in this instance, the mediator can't be God himself. Although yes, he can be a member of a class which is one party. According to the New Testament, our permanent high priest is one of us. See, for example, Hebrews 2.17, 4.15, and 5.1-10. This suggests that Jesus' mission was not for God to be, as Jesus, closer to us, but rather to be a permanent intermediary, enabling a new and more profound access to God. I suggest that it's a better fit with the New Testament to say that, whatever we may speculate would be the best, In fact, God has befriended humans at long last, not by becoming one himself, but rather by sending us his human Messiah, his unique Son, whose death atoned for our sins, and who now lives in order to facilitate a new level, a new covenant level, of friendship with God through his Son. Now, what about Dr. Mullins' ideas about solidarity? When I look up solidarity in the dictionary, it tells me that it means the unity of a group. I think, though, that here it has an emotional meaning. 
to, so to speak, stand in solidarity with us is to align with us by being willing to suffer along with us, insofar as that's possible. Well, as you've heard already, that little phrase, insofar as that is possible, puts a dark cloud over this line of speculation. Can God, even incarnate, die? Not cease to exist. I know he can't do that as necessarily existing. But I mean, can he lose his life? And can God really, by incarnating, come to know the loneliness of physical helplessness? Does he, in becoming incarnate, cease to be all-powerful? And I would ask, does he cease to be sufficiently well-off, even without anything else? A quality which I have long thought a perfect being must have. Mind you, I'm not talking about the classical theist's odd fantasy of a God who experiences only pure bliss. Rather, the idea is that God is happy in the sense of having a fullness of well-being, of being sufficiently well-off in himself, even before creation, and no matter what anyone else does. This blessedness is compatible, in my view, with terrible, profound suffering. The suffering of one who gets a front-seat view of every murder, every rape, and every war crime this evil age can produce. As horrible as these things are, and as perfectly sympathetic as God is, in my view, these are not going to knock him out of his secure state of well-being. Pure bliss? No. His mental life has to be complicated. Again, we're not to imagine here that he's indifferent. Rather, he has a perfect emotional strength and security by which he can absorb unimaginable suffering without it ruining his life. Some will balk at Dr. Mullins' suggestion that in creating a world containing creatures like us, God acquires moral obligations. But this should not be controversial. All Christians should agree that God is at least obligated to keep his promises. And what's the alternative? That a creator might well, consistent with being perfectly good, do anything at all with us? I think not. And I also think that Dr. Mullins is correct in saying that it would be morally wrong to create beings like us and to allow us to be liable to the kind of terrible perils we face and to stand emotionally aloof from it all, making oneself to be unaffected by it, to completely emotionally withdraw. It's a big and important theme of his work that Dr. Mullins wants us to understand God as a fully perfect being. And part of this seems to be to not render oneself immune to empathy, turning a heartless cold shoulder. Remember, this is the God who Jesus taught us is aware even of the death of the silly little sparrows. Jesus says that not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care, Matthew 10.29. Surely that all-encompassing care is not without emotion. A perfect God must be affected emotionally moved by what happens to his creatures. As Mullins and Swinburne say, his perfect goodness would lead him to share in our suffering. But the question is, how? Swinburne says, by becoming incarnate. But why that? Surely that will not increase his emotional range or abilities. Would it make God more vulnerable? How? Would he, as divine, still be perfect in power and knowledge, not dependent on anything else for his happiness or blessedness? 
Granted, it would be moving to see, pardon my expression, God getting his butt kicked. But is this possible? And does the New Testament say this has happened? I see no shock among the apostles on or after Good Friday to the effect that, surprisingly, God himself had just been killed. This is a notable and important absence, and it tells us a lot about who they thought Jesus was. Again, see Podcast 333, The Arguments of God's Death, which, if you haven't heard it, is literally about a comical puppet show, but a very insightful one. Again, incarnation is not necessary to express the sort of solidarity and vulnerability Mullins has in mind. An obvious question, given what is actually in the New Testament, is, why wouldn't it be a sufficient act of solidarity for God to send his own precious and unique human son? That is literally putting skin in the game, but not his own skin, which the New Testament God, a.k.a. the Father, does not have, but rather the skin of someone uniquely precious to him. In the Gospel according to Matthew, God says this about his human son, Jesus, twice. This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Matthew 3.17, during the baptism, Matthew 17.5, during the transfiguration. God loves all his children, but I think it is fair to say that Jesus is his favorite. And I would add that I do not think it is wrong for human parents to have a favorite child, nor do I think that our Father in Heaven can't have a favorite. If I had a son or daughter who perfectly loved me back and never wronged me, I would be very attached to that one. And most of us parents find that one child most deeply touches our heart, even though all children are stinkers sometimes. Further, to paraphrase the Buddha, parenting is suffering. Really. I have three grown children, and all are physically alive and well, and yet there are things which have happened to them that I tell people, this is the worst thing that ever happened to me. Yes, to me. And if I could reverse time, and I knew for sure that it would help, there are things involving my children that I would literally jump in front of a bus, wait, no, that would be mean to the bus driver, about literally jump off a cliff in order to prevent. And me, I'm not all that empathetic. I can be a heartless SOB, honestly. Just ask my wife. I am very far from being a perfect parent. But the plight of my children affects me that much. Now think about one who is perfectly empathetic, as he is perfect in all moral virtues. What will it be like to see his favorite human son get horrifically murdered over the course of an afternoon via the barbaric custom of crucifixion, while his disciples seemingly abandon him. They've all fled or are just helplessly standing around. The intense shame, the despair, the pain, those are all yours, too. You who are divinely and perfectly sympathetic, even though you are not the one being crucified. You and I can, barely, Imagine how terrible it is to be crucified. But can we even imagine how terrible it is to be perfect in knowledge while being perfectly sympathetic and seeing this go down in gruesome detail? Every thorn prick, every whip mark, every labored breath, 
every feeling of despair, every drop of blood, every shiver, every sick and dizzy feeling, every shudder of shame, every evil thought and sneeringly, deeply inappropriate words by the passers-by. You behold it all in high resolution. In fact, you experience more of it than the pitiful victim himself. In this moment, it absolutely sucks to be you in this respect. And by you, I mean God, the Heavenly Father, not Jesus. Yes, it is super terrible to experience what Jesus does here. I'm not minimizing that precious sacrifice for one second. But what I'm saying is that this experience will be even more painful for the Father who so perfectly knows and loves him. At a certain point, Jesus loses consciousness. He goes limp. He turns gray and begins to become cold. At that time, God's unimaginable searing pain is still burning him. The dead Jesus, this should not be. This is not deserved. It is terrible to behold, even though it was part of God's plan all along. Oh, God put skin in the game. The skin of his emotions, so to speak, was brutally ripped right off, and boy did it hurt. And while that is a pinnacle of God's involvement with human suffering, it is not by any means its full extent. It hurts God. He's strongly face-palming, so to speak, every time we knowingly do wrong, and especially when we intentionally hurt each other. We lie, we cheat, we steal, we kill, and guess who gets a front row seat to all of it? And who can't, so to speak, cover his eyes or distract himself by mentally going somewhere else? No, he sits there, eyes open, and takes it. He takes in, he absorbs all of this brutality. This is the fate of a perfect being who is emotionally involved with his creation. Try for one second to imagine being God and seeing the next major war break out with all the senseless cruelty and waste of life that that entails. Here comes the pain in terrible mammoth tidal waves that would overwhelm and emotionally annihilate a lesser being. Every bullet Every artillery shell is a potential unjust death, an emotionally destroyed mother or father or sibling. The pain, I suggest, of beholding all of this is unimaginable. And let's not even go into the Holocaust. We just turn away, which God cannot do. Have you, like me, been emotionally scarred by the battle scenes of the American Civil War movie Glory or of the World War II movie Saving Private Ryan? Imagine beholding in perfect detail, 10 million times more than that, for real. And of course, usually more people die in wartime of sickness and starvation than in battle. A human would not emerge sane from such experiences. But the Almighty is emotionally up to it. You think you know what suffering is? God says, Hold my beer. I 
but I need to be one of, one of you to know what pain is. My capacity for pain is infinitely greater than yours. When the Trinity's podcast returns, my conclusions. I suggest then that we can have a theology in which God discharges his duties to care for his creation, including making himself emotionally vulnerable. First, he informs us by means of general revelation. This, Paul teaches in Romans 1, gives all humans the bare minimum they need to know and seek and obey God. But then through one special nation in his own time, God gives much greater revelation about himself and about how to please him. This precious inheritance has come to us through that amazing little tribe of people, the Jews. A series of them served as prophets, as human spokesmen for the Almighty, instructing, exhorting, scolding, warning, and predicting on behalf of God, their Master, often with validating miracles. Third, God sent us His human Son, His Messiah, to bring yet greater and more complete revelation and a new covenant which is suitable to all the tribes of the world, to holy ones from every tribe and language and people and nation. Revelation 5.9 This Son brought us the profoundest teaching yet and served as a perfect example of faithful, loving obedience to God. And He was an appropriate atoning sacrifice for us, one acceptable and pleasing to God. Fourth, God has destined him to rule the world under him and to be the permanent mediator so that we, in Paul's words, have access in boldness and confidence through faith in him. Ephesians 3.12 This, I suggest, seems like sufficient care, and we have not needed any problematic God-man speculations. This theologian McConnell suggests that the cross is God satisfying his own conscience and maintain his own self-respect. I wouldn't say those things. It's not like God's conscience ever troubled him or that his self-respect was ever threatened by his own actions. But yes, God has done the right thing for us, emotionally speaking, but I would add, in the way that the New Testament actually teaches. We don't need this later myth of a dying God. In my view, Mullins and McConnell are absolutely correct in thinking that God must be emotionally invested in the lives of his creatures. But that doesn't require becoming incarnate. Let's not reason like this. Either God doesn't care what happens to you, or God becomes incarnate. As we've seen, those are not the only two options. And again, it's not clear that incarnation is a metaphysically possible option at all. God can very well care about what happens to you, indeed, suffer along with us in unimaginable intensity, 
while instead sending his precious human son on this all-important mission. Dare we say that this is a second best to the much greater plan of God's becoming a human himself? In closing, we want our theology to include Jesus' death as a once-and-for-all atoning sacrifice. We want our theology to show how God gives us sufficient instruction, example, and encouragement to follow Christ in this dark time. And we want our theology to show a God who truly loves us, and who has not somehow emotionally closed himself off so that he's immune to sympathy. No, we want to understand God as a perfect being, who will therefore need to be perfect in compassion, mercy, pity, and empathy. A God-man theory on which God himself, or perhaps one-third of God, becomes human, well, that's one way to purchase these goods. But this is an expensive purchase. It costs leaping beyond what the New Testament says, having to deal somehow with at least 11 apparent contradictions, yikes, and it tends to go hand-in-hand with the problematic pronouncements of the so-called ecumenical councils. What if we could purchase all these valuable goods more cheaply, so to speak? The New Testament Jesus tells us that he is a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God, John 8.40. This same one, a great prophet tells us, is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John 1.29. Some will pound the table and insist that a human atoner could never work. But the New Testament view seems to be that, yes, it did. And a human Messiah, it seems, looking at the New Testament, is sufficient for our instruction and as an example for us to imitate. In fact, he would arguably be a better example for us to imitate than would be a God-man. And a God who volunteers to go through the searing, unimaginable pain of seeing his favorite human son murdered, this is truly a God who cares. In fact, he might plausibly suffer more than a hypothetical God-man who gets crucified himself. Once we open the door to divine emotions, we must think that God's emotional life is very, very complicated and simultaneously encompasses the greatest joys. Imagine beholding all the fish in the seas at once, and at the same time, terrible, ripping, searing pain. During those horrible times of war, those lovely fish are still swimming, and they're just as beautiful as they ever were. How else could our Father in Heaven be, given how much He loves us and even the smallest of His non-human creatures? There is something very hard to understand here, to be sure, what it's like to be God. And yet, no contradictions appear. It's so much more plausible than the out-to-lunch God of so-called classical theism, who exists timelessly in perfect bliss, being incapable of any suffering, while the world burns. That's not my God. I can't think that God is emotionally absent, as some human fathers are. There is a God who suffers for us and with us, and who notably did so on the day Jesus was crucified. But this God is not Jesus, the human Son of God. It's the one true God of the New Testament, our Heavenly Father. This week's thinking music has been the track What's On My Mind by Ivan Chu. As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org where you can listen to or download that entire track. 
Also, be sure to check out that blog post for a bunch of links relevant to this episode, including links to Dr. Mullins' website, his podcast, and his writings. listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.